So, hey, Kara, what's up? Oh, Chris, I'm exhausted and I have a kink in my neck. <laughs> I also have a kink in my neck. What is yours from? I think mine is from sleeping and breathing. So, living. Yeah, okay, so in all fairness, I have bone spurs in my neck vertebrae, so it might be from that. I <laughs> also do your workout still and probably hurt myself. I also am on loratadine D, which is fake Claritin D with pseudoephedrine, which makes me all dense. <laughs> all muscles are contracted. All. all muscles are contracted all the time. <laughs> but especially in my neck and back. Uh, mine is from deadlifting for science. Right on. Um, yeah, I've got a student who's doing, the, an undergraduate student doing this little study comparing deadlift grips, so double overhand versus mixed one overhand, one underhand. And basically you have to deadlift until your grip gives out. Oh. Yeah, and it turns out my grip didn't give out as fast as my lungs gave out. And so now my neck is in a bit of a bind. <laughs> you know, speaking of that, I have found some lifting I can do, and I probably shouldn't. Like some things, like when I'm doing bench press, I get to a certain point and I'm like, holy shit, where's my spotter? I can't get this up. But when it comes to leg press, I can press a lot of weight, but suddenly like something in me will break. <laughs> and i'll be like um could i have had some pain to warn me of that before it happened so i could stop <laughs> speaking no. of which i have another pain can i complain about my other pain complain about your other pain so last spring i had this mysterious swollen middle knuckle on my hand and it hurt constantly and i went to all of the doctors everywhere and i kept going like what is this usual thing why does it hurt when I do this and they were like well you know I don't know but don't do that and I'm like that's my writing hand I'm my typing hand like as an academic this is important I need to be able to do this I'm sitting here with my hands out pretending to type for those of you who can't see us that was and me this morning and the movements of my hands were so slight that my motion censored light turned off on me at least three times. <laughs> well, it, it also hurt when I would go to shake hands it would hurt when I would lift I couldn't even fist bump and be a cool dude and fist bump because it was hurting right there. I do these little wimpy fist bumps. It stopped. I got sent to a fancy doctor that I never went to because I only go to the doctor once. And if you can't fix it once, I don't go for other copays. And then it just stopped hurting and went away until it got cold. And I started my little project of building pallet furniture in my garage again. And it's returned. I've discovered it's the constant running of the sander to strip pallets down to be used for furniture that is causing my issue. So the moral of the story is, yours and mine, don't have any fun, don't have any hobbies, they will hurt you. Sit in a dark corner away from all objects and just breathe. Although apparently breathing gives you a neck ache too. So. Yeah, sleeping is a problem. Sleeping is a problem. Anyway, anyway, so we basically discussed everything at this point except who we have on the show today. I know. So there's a voice that you may hear in the background snickering at our maladies and plights. We have our amazing, awesome, good friend and colleague, Dr. Julie Lesnick, on with us. Hey, Julie. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Julie. And again, I now get to say it, another Michigan connection. Woohoo! Julie was a graduate student at the University of Michigan in the Department of Anthropology when I was an undergraduate. So how many Michigan connections have we had so far, Chris? 
70. <laughs> it's like half our interviews. There's some connection to the University of Michigan. 30 interviews, 70 connections to Michigan. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Because they, you know, they interweb and interweave. So welcome, and thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and we kind of start most of our interviews these days with getting to know you a little bit better through finding out your anthropology origin story. So how did you originally get into anthropology? And then what in this crazy world made you want to pursue a career? Oh, man. So I was really fortunate that I had an anthropology class in high school. I went to a very large high school. We had a history teacher that, yeah, crazy. And it was just a history teacher who everybody loved him and he just wanted to teach this class. And so it was there on our curriculum. It fulfilled the same requirements as sociology and psychology. And so in my senior year, one of those didn't fit my schedule. And they're like, well, you could take this anthropology class. And I was like, everybody introduced to it. I'm like, what's that? And, and so then I took it and I enjoyed it, but I wasn't sure if I liked the class or I liked the teacher. I wasn't sure if it, the content was really interesting or if it was just a teacher that made the content interesting. And so then when I was in college, I could take it to fulfill a gen ed. And so I thought I'd give it a try. So I took an archaeology course my freshman year. It was Rise of Civilization. And then from there, I went and I dug in Sicily that summer and I was a European Whoa. archaeologist. Yeah, I jumped in right away. It was that moment of like, I didn't know you could do this for a career type thing. I didn't know that archaeology was really a thing that you could study. So it was kind of one of those moments. And so I did a lot of field work as an undergrad, three field seasons, you know, after every year of college. But then it was graduation time and it was time to go on to grad school. And that's always what I thought I was going to do was go for a PhD. I've always wanted to teach. I actually, prior to my major in anthro, which I switched after freshman year, I was a biology major, but I wanted to be a biology professor. Like, mm. so, everybody, so everybody's like, oh, do you want to be pre-med? And I'm like, no, I want to be a professor. And I switched to anthropology and they're like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to be a professor. They're like, well, yeah, what else can you do with it? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe there would have been more career options with the initial plan. Why did you always want to be a professor if you don't mind me interjecting? That was a good question. I always liked teaching and it was a AP biology teacher that I had in high school. And I really wanted to just be able to answer questions really well. <laughs> you know, like I always admired my teachers and like my AP classes, especially, or, you know, my freshman year. And just you wanted to be a professional smarty pants. I did. I did. I wanted to know everything and I wanted to show the world I knew everything. (laughs) So I wanted to teach, but I'm not a kid's person at all. I'm the baby in my family. There are no kids. I don't have kids. I don't want kids. And so even at that age, I was like, wait, but if I have to teach kids, then I don't (laughs) want to teach. So so then I was like, oh, I could teach college. I could teach adults or at least people who are like there to learn because they want to be a little bit more than just going through the, you know, primary, middle school, high school kind of track. I want to interject again for listeners out there who may think we're laughing maliciously. I only laugh because it's true. One. (laughs) Two, because I also just wanted to teach at college and then found myself working in museums and had to teach all sorts of ages. Reinforcing (laughs) that I'd rather teach in college. Go ahead. So yeah, I always wanted to be a professor. That was my thing. So then I was like, oh, anthropology makes a lot of sense. But then I had done so much field work and it was so kind of gung-ho on having my CV perfect, every volunteer opportunity or whatever, that come graduation, I was pretty burned out. Mm. And so I took a year off, but at the time I didn't know it was a year off. I wasn't sure I was ever going back. The whole time I was in college, I was training horses as my Mm. job. As you will. Um, 
as you do. And so upon graduation, I was like, well, I can train horses full time. And that was a dream job for me. I started riding when I was nine and I always worked at barns. I always worked off my lessons and I was the barn kid. So training horses full time was a dream come true. And it was while I was training, it was October. I'll never forget. It was October. And I just had this kind of moment of, I really miss thinking about big questions. Training horses was constant problem solving and it was always different. It was always engaging. So it wasn't like I wasn't using my brain, but I just wasn't using it the way that I now know my brain is really good at doing. I'm a much better big picture thinker. And of course I had no clue even then that that was what my strength was. And so I started thinking, I was like, well, what's the big picture? What am I interested in? And I kind of got into an existential thing with archaeology being like, okay, we dig up everybody's garbage. And I had this existential like, but why do we have garbage? (laughs) 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 Like smoking like a true 20 year old. But it was in, I decided to go more human evolution instead of archaeology, but I was going to study paleoanthro and study early tool use and early brain evolution is what I went into grad school to study. So how did you come across the Michigan program and be a Milford student? Oh, man. So I was an undergraduate at Northern Illinois University, and Fred Smith was there at the time I was there. He was transitioning from chair of our department to dean, so I didn't actually get to know him very well. I had one class with him, and it was in deciding to make the switch from archaeology to bio. Since he taught my bio class, I needed his letter. And so I sent that typical email that every student sends. I don't know if you remember me. Uh, And then, of course. I wonder if anyone ever says no. Right. (laughs) I have. (laughs) So I sent that email. You're so mean. I'm honest. (laughs) You're honest. Exactly. But it is so funny because the good students you really remember, you know. So every student that's ever sent that to me, it's like, of course I remember you. So I'm sure it was very similar to him. And I talked to him about where I was applying to. And he's like, well, what about Michigan? And I was like, well, I don't. And Michigan was on a pedestal for me. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'd get in there. And he's like, well, you definitely won't get in if you don't apply. (laughs) And then I ended up getting in. And Milford Wapoff was a spectacular advisor for me because I went in going like, I think evolution's cool and tools. And I didn't really have a clear idea. And Milford was fine with that. He really appreciated that about me and encouraged me to just take classes in so many different disciplines within anthro, but outside of anthro. I took philosophy, I took evolutionary biology, everything across the board. And he just, he really fostered that in me. And so it ultimately worked out well because I found this project with edible insects that really combined it all in a way you could never predict. And there's the segue. There you go. You have a new book out. First of all, congratulations, because having a book, writing a book is not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing, and I love another selfish intersection. I love your acknowledgments, Carrie. No, we happen to be in it. there. We're yeah. in the acknowledgments. I was so jazzed. Oh, yeah, hey. I was stunned. But the I, title of the book is called Edible Insects and Human Evolution. But before we get into what the book is about, because I definitely want to hear it, how did you get into insects at all? Is this like, I mean, I know Milford because I was his undergrad student and like that was totally not a Milford thing. So I'm so curious about the trajectory from coming in of just human evolution. Horses, (laughs) human evolution, insects. And it, of course, is a Milford thing that I got there. But when I started at Michigan, it was also the first time I'd ever taken a primatology class. We Mm. had primatology. There were wonderful people at Northern Illinois, but I just didn't take the classes. And so it was the first time that, especially having a chimpanzee person. So Dan Jibo was at Northern Illinois, and I kind of knew the work that he was doing. But 
I'd never been around somebody who studied chimps. And so my very first semester, I took a class with John Matani. And then also in my first semester, I was taking our core course, ARC 1, I guess is probably all it was called. <laughs> um, and so that was a lot about hunter-gatherers and early societies. And so taking these two classes at the same time and having an interest in tool use, chimpanzee tool use became something I just really dove into really hard that first year. And the chimps came very natural to me because of that kind of background with horses and just being an animal person. The training I did with horses was very behavioral based. So it's sort of that like horse whispery kind of training. So natural horsemanship. So it's very based on the horse's natural behavior. So understanding chimps natural behavior was easy for me. And so then because of those interests, Milford then told me about these bone tools that are in South Africa that were found from the site of Swartkrons. They were published on in 2001. I started grad school in 2004. So they'd already been out for a couple of years preserving evidence that they were used to dig into termite mounds. And so Milford thought this was the perfect thing for me to study. But they'd just been published on extensively. And so I went to South Africa to look at these tools because I had nothing else to do. Um, and I came home going, Milford, I don't want to study them because... Lucinda Backwell just has written like six articles about it. What more am I supposed to say? And so then he left me alone <laughs> because this is what Milford does. Milford would go, yeah, you're saying that now. Come back to me in six months. I know your mind's going to change is 90% of what my graduate career was. And so six months later, <laughs> I'd, I'd been thinking about this a little more and the tools were interesting to me. But when people talk about like, oh, how do you pick a dissertation project? I was like, eventually something will piss you off enough that you have to do it. <laughs> and, and that's kind of how I came into this project because in taking more classes in evolutionary biology and understanding chimps eating termites more, when I would read paleoanthropologists talking about these tools, being used to dig up termites. I was like, well, that means so little because there are so many species of termites. What termites? Like we think of termites as eating wood, but they can eat grass, they can eat soil, and then they have a caste system. So what if you eat the soldiers versus the workers versus the flying ones? And so the word termite started just piss me off in the literature because it meant very little to me. I was like, that's not a contribution to understanding their diet or what resources they were really using. So that became kind of the foundation of my dissertation was, could I tease it down to like a genus level, what termites I think robust Australopithecines were eating? So then, yeah, take us in a little bit more going from dissertation to book. I have a lot of questions about the book itself, but maybe you can give us just an overview of the book and what your big goal was with it. So the book was full disclosure. I proposed the book to University Press of Florida on a whim at the AAPA meetings in Knoxville while I was an adjunct. So I was an adjunct, I had no research funds, I had no research trajectory really even because I was just trying to keep my head above water teaching. And it was John Hawks, another Milford student, he had finished a couple of years before I was there, told me, he's like, your stuff, it's interesting, why don't you write a book? It was pretty much exactly the conversation. So then I started spitballing what this book might look like. I then went around proposing it that day to editors at the different presses and Florida was interested. So it really came out of necessity as like a way to keep myself active in research in a way I could with having zero money and zero support. So my dissertation was all on robust australopithecines and, and reconstructing the insect portion of their diet. But then after that, I started thinking about what Neanderthal diet might have looked like. And clearly insects did not make sense for me to reconstruct for Neanderthal diets. But I started then thinking about how that could be related to the fact that we don't eat insects in Europe today or in very Western countries like the US and Canada. And I was like, oh, well, maybe it's just kind of an environmental signal, right? Like 
up in the northern latitudes, insects aren't a very valuable food source. So Neanderthals didn't eat them, and that's kind of why Europeans don't eat them today. So it was kind of that was really the threads of it. And then it was like, well, what patterns do I have that I can use? And it was, I think it was even John. He's like, well, don't women eat more insects than men? I was like, well, yeah, I think so. Like every time I've seen something, it's been that. And so it was like, okay, well, why don't I go out and test this? Why don't I look at all the ethnographic info I can find? And it became very clear. It was very much a resource that women collect more than men because it's a very low risk, high reward resource. It's protein rich and a bunch of other nutrients. So it makes a lot of sense for women to go after it. So I was like, well, how old is this pattern? Can I reconstruct this for fossil hominids? And I was like, well, do we see it in primates? And I was like, well, I know we do in chimps, but we always talk about that as like a tool use thing. Like chimpanzee females learn tool use better from their moms and the boys go off and play. And I was like, well, what about other primates? And so I started digging into the literature and the pattern, there's not a lot of data. People don't look at these questions very often, but when they do, if the data's there that I can tease it apart to sex differences, it's almost always the females that eat more insects than males. So I started realizing that this is a very deep pattern. It's not a human pattern. It's not even an ape pattern. It's probably a haplorine pattern. And so just every step of the way, when I went to look up something, it all, all the pieces kept falling into place. Thinking about that Western bias more, it was like, okay, well, environment, Neanderthals not eating insects, that's an ex explanation for why we don't eat bugs, but doesn't explain why we hate them, like why we have such negative reactions. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I dig into the letters of explorers, if I can find them saying anything. Oh yeah, quotes of like, people are like beasts so much that they eat the bugs. It was so obvious that these European explorers, when they came into contact with indigenous peoples, if it was Columbus's voyage to the Caribbean, it was immediately like they had such a strong negative reaction to insects. And to me, that's laid this cultural foundation that has then led to actual biological disgust in us because we train it into our kids and you grow up with it. And so everything I looked for, it was there and it just painted this beautiful story. And so you touched on this a little bit, but I want to make yeah. sure explicitly put it out there. So in the preface of your book, you state that two of your primary goals uh, were to one, decolonize anthropology and two, come at it from a feminist perspective, which Awesome. Bravo. Like I was so excited to see someone put that in writing at the front of a book so they know where you're coming from. So a few questions on this. Let's start with the first one of why did you decide to do this? It was never the intention at the beginning. I really feel like this was a thread I started to unravel. It was as soon as I started studying edible insects, it just became so obvious that we know so little about it because of these barriers to knowledge. This having such a singular white European male voice in anthropology for so long, we miss so much info. And I may have even been taught it. I'm sure people have said it to me before, but it wasn't until it started becoming obvious to me when I wanted to look stuff up. There's no record of indigenous Americans eating insects. No anthropologist studied it before we moved them onto the reservations. It was this just amazing loss of knowledge mm. because of these stereotypes and these biases. And so that's where the colonial kind of aspect came from. What if this research wasn't done by Europeans? And then, you know, the feminist perspective was this idea that similarly, when, when you're studying what people are eating and the men are going out and hunting, yes, that's the more exciting thing. And then that's what gets written about and that's what gets talked about. But it's the women that are like feeding everybody. And it's the women who need to eat for themselves in order to have babies and keep our species going. And why we don't talk about that more was blowing my mind. And so then it became a clear bias based on sex. And so 
I was really lucky because of this project that I stumbled into it, that both of these things just kind of hit me in the face as I started working on this topic. And so I think the reason I was explicit about it was because I want to help other people find their way to those ideas, maybe quicker, maybe, maybe sooner, and demonstrate how edible insects are such a good example of these being serious issues in our field. One thing I love is that, again, you explicitly said it. And so I'm wondering, how would you encourage more anthropologists to do that same sort of thing, making sure they're decolonizing their, their work and it's coming from a feminist perspective? And as they're doing it, do you have any bits of advice? I think, you know, for students, the thing I'm trying to do with students is really encourage them to use their electives, kind of similar to how I took so many electives outside of anthropology. Hey, you know, a feminist studies class or African-American studies or anything that kind of represents those themes, as well as philosophy, like start challenging how you think and start challenging what we think we know, because we're taught anthropology, like this is what we know, but we need to start challenging that more because what we know came from a very specific perspective. So if we can just challenge everything we're told and be like, well, if I was not a white man, is that how I would see things? And start just trying to think differently. Because I think so many more questions, so much more is going to advance in our knowledge base once we start kind of changing how we look at that. And so it's this constant recognition of your point of view and this constant awareness of other points of view. Yeah, that is a great way of putting it. Yeah. I, I have a question related both to your personal questioning of yourself and then also how you address the issue of supposedly biologically or genetically programmed disgust. So you question the innate snake spider avoidance literature, which is one of those things that we all learn is ingrained. And I love the way you do that. Walk us through, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit of that chapter, your own bug-eating bias and what's going on there with our fear-disgust module, so-called. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I think it's a great question because, and I think that's a lot of the book I wrote was because my own personal journey, like this is how I figured it out. So let me teach you what I learned. And, and absolutely that bug disgust trigger is strong in me. Like I'm a picky eater. I did not want to eat bugs. I actively avoided them for years as a well-seasoned picky eater. I'm really good at avoiding things without drawing attention to it. And so people didn't necessarily realize I wasn't eating bugs. And then I started realizing sort of the hypocrisy of that and being like, I know that billions of people eat bugs and I don't want to. And I know it must be cultural. Like it feels so real. It is so biological. My stomach churns, but it's cultural. And so how is that? So I started looking into research on disgust and fear and learned that so much of it is developmental. So if you don't have the cues when you're a kid, those pathways won't get linked. And so kind of the way I usually tell people is like, a two-year-old will put anything in their mouth as human beings that can have kids. Parents need to tell their kids what not to put in their mouth. So if they're playing in the toilet or playing in the trash, <laughs> you tell them that's gross, but kids will do it. I mean, like it's on commercials all the time. Like a kid goes and puts something in the toilet. Get we out have- of the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and it's so, it's just because they're exploring. And so you have to teach them, no, that's Ooh. icky. That's gross. And then all of a sudden, then when they're older, they will ultimately absolutely yell at their kids for playing in the toilet, playing in the trash and becomes biologically real. But if nobody ever says that to them, if there's never a like repercussion, 
at that moment, that trigger doesn't get set. And so I started thinking about this so differently, this disgust about eating insects. It's like, oh, well, you know, I was lucky that people always asked if I liked bugs as a kid. And it's like, not really, but I always had respect for them. I was always the, like, my mom was the one who'd put it under a glass and take a postcard and walk it outside. <laughs> and so, familiar. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's how I treat bugs. I've done it since I was a kid. And that my mom had taught me a respect for these insects. And at the same time, if I tried to eat one, I'm sure she would have yelled at me. But it's like now thinking about how we can do this different. It's like, well, no, I don't want you taking that cricket out of the garden and putting it in your mouth. I don't know where it's been. The pesticides alone and, you know, the fertilizers alone are going to be bad for you. But maybe we can buy you some edible insects some stuff that's farmed at a facility just for human consumption if you're interested in eating bugs. Like that's the reaction we need to start having with our kids when they want to put a bug in their mouth. But the piece that I found, and that's great. That's, that's oh, yeah, wonderful. We'll do. <laughs> what do you want uh, me to say, Chris? <laughs> I want you to talk about snakes and spiders also, because I think that's an important oh, yeah. point that you make. So the snake thing, so I'm terrified of snakes. And, I and hate I, snakes. And I will say that mostly this caught my attention because I just had this discussion with my grad students and I sat there going like, I don't believe this crap because not everybody's afraid of right. things. Yeah, I'm terrified of snakes, but then there's people who love them and have them as pets and want to carry them around their neck. And so I think it's a very easy thing to develop, but there must be a way to not develop it. And so there's great psychological literature on this, showing kids videos or pictures. And then you know, if you demonstrate a fear response, versus not demonstrating the fear response, the kids won't develop the fear response by just looking at the pictures either way. But if it's a video of the snake moving mm. and you demonstrate a fear response, the kids will then be scared mm. of the snakes. And it's similar in, in, I think it's macaques. There's a study with macaques in a lab setting and same thing. If the macaques never see their other friends get scared, they won't get scared. Mm. So it's very much learned. But especially when it's learned during that critical period when our brains are forming, it then becomes really real. And it's so early, it's hard to pull it apart from genetics. Right. In essence. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it is. It's a developmental. It needs to, the genes are probably there and predisposed because we do have a history with snakes being venomous, like primates and snakes, not a good mix. So I think there's probably the genes that are there, but if you never live around snakes, then you wouldn't develop it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hmm. So it seems that you are taking your work from the book and now applying it to a new form of media with a YouTube channel. Yeah. Tell us the name of the channel, what you're doing with it, all the fun stuff and what you want it to actually do. How do you want it to work for you? Oh man. So this is super exciting. I have a fellowship right now in public engagement through the AAAS, so the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And so it's given me just the luxury, I, I have no other word to use, to say, I'm going to take a step back from my research and really focus on public engagement. I mean, I've always done engagement, but now I get to like do something. What's the next big thing? What could I achieve if I could really put all my time to it? And so that's why I was like, my greatest communication, you know, for public engagement comes from public speaking, but I'm limited in time and travel and invites and all of these things. And I was like, oh, maybe I should take it to the internet. Maybe I should have a YouTube channel. And so that's what I've been working on. And 
the name of the channel is going to be octopus and ape the name is one clearly we're apes and so i'm going to focus a lot on kind of the evolution and the biology of the human condition and our closest relatives but also just life science in general and just how amazing evolution is and how we can see it in so many aspects of our lives if we just look for it so i wanted something else in addition to the ape and so octopus being the super intelligent ocean dwelling creature to kind of go with the land dwelling super intelligent creature seemed like a good balance i kind of have two goals with it is that a lot of my content at least up front is going to come from how i teach my intro to bioanthro class so I have so many anecdotes that I use to teach things from meiosis or, you know, identifying humans as primates or all of the different things we cover in that class. And the realization that freshmen are really the public. They have the same base of knowledge that we expect the general public to have, a, a biology background that came from some classes, you know, in high school where they might not remember how meiosis works, but they know it's a thing. And so they can kind of catch on quick because they had been exposed to it in the past. So using that sort of the template, I want to create just like three to five minute videos on, on sort of all these different ways I teach things in my class that other bioanth profs can use, especially with more classes being taught online. I think this resource could be really useful and I think it'll start kind of getting my channel out there. But the ultimate goal is that it's for the public, you know, so if we can just kind of build up a viewer base of students and bioanth profs, then I think it can expand from there to just target curious people, people who might have been interested in biology in high school, but took a more practical degree route in college and went and ran a family business or any number of things that aren't biology, but maybe they like nature shows or they really enjoyed that class. And so just kind of creating content for them. So a lot of evolution, a lot of look at how crazy these animals are, but also trying to pick out ways it shows up in pop culture. So mm. like Ant-Man, the movie, like how well are the ants represented in Ant-Man mm. and fun things like that. When do you hope to roll it out? The very first episodes should be out in March. I'm working on my teaser trailer now. So the teaser <laughs> trailer will be out soon. First full episodes should be up in March. And I look at July as like my, this will be out to where there's enough content that professors can start planning their fall course. Nice. That's great. So how much actually goes into this? Give us a brief rundown for anyone who might be thinking of doing a YouTube channel because from this podcast, we've had people interested in starting their own podcast. Right. You might be inspiring people, your competition. Right. <laughs> oh, no, there's room for everybody at the table. So give us the uh, blueprints. <laughs> you know, I, truthfully, I don't have good numbers to share because I've just started. I think the thing that I can really share, and I'll go into the content production, but it's just the like amount of time and energy I've put into to thinking about my audience how I'm going to reach them. What is my tone? What are the things that are going to stay consistent from episode to episode? Like, what is my brand? Like, and that has taken me months and months to like really get that nailed down. So I haven't started making content yet because I want to make sure I know that. And so I'm now just getting to the place where I can feel like I know my mission statement is in me now. Like I get it. And I know that everything I do is probably going to stay true to it. But I just kind of had to get my head in the right place and get all those things together. The production, how I'm doing it, is that I am going to record, ideally I'll have two takes on everything. First take is me just rambling because that's when I'm at my best. If you want me to explain something, I'm just going to start explaining it and I'm going to come up with things on the fly that are going to come across the most natural and probably be pretty good. And so I'm going to do one take, just me off the cuff, and then I'll kind of write the script off of that and do it again where I can clean up the areas 
where I stumbled too much. So hopefully just editing those two takes, I kind of look at it as like half a day of recording and then a day and a half, hopefully, of editing at this point. Ideally, I want to get this all down to where one Friday a month, I'm able to do one or two episodes. But right now, the editing is going to take me a long time because it's new to me. I've made some iMovies or whatever, but never to the level of production that I'm trying to pull off for this. So fortunately, I have my husband helping me. He has a background in a lot in association management, in tour management, in lighting and all sorts of things. So he's going to help me with some of the editing. So that'll help. Very useful skills. Yes. (laughs) It sounds like a very well-balanced plan of action. So that brings us to our final question, our fun question. How do you guys, two of you in in general, maintain a happy work-life balance? What do you do for fun? Do you do non-academic stuff to keep that balance or... I think those lines are blending now. I use like because I watch a lot of nature shows and I have my animals and I have my plants and just kind of connecting with nature in some way. If I don't ride anymore because I can't in the mental capacity, like if I try to go ride a horse, I'm mad at myself for not being a professional horseback rider anymore. So I haven't been able to kind of balance horses and academia. I've tried multiple times and have failed. So I find other ways to kind of get that sort of connection with nature and with animals in different ways. And that's really what Octopus and Ape has kind of morphed into is sort of like in an ideal world, I'd have my own nature show. And so it's now been really fun because when I sit on the couch at night watching nature shows, I'm now coming up with episode ideas and, and taking notes. It's taken what was a hobby and making it work But I think that's the reason why I think Octopus and Ape is going to work out and why it'll succeed is because it's genuinely 100% my interests and my love. And I'm just going to pour it into that channel. Awesome. Well, that's great. Julie, thank you so much for being on the Sausage of Science with us today. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How can people get in touch with you? I know you're on Twitter, but what's your best way for people to ask you questions about the book or the podcast or the upcoming YouTube channel? Yeah, so much stuff going on. So Twitter is a great way, just at Julie Lesnick on Twitter. But my website is entomoanthro.org. So you can always send me a message there. And both of those things will start having some teasers about Octopus and Ape coming up. Awesome. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? I am at Chris underscore L-Y, Twitter. <laughs> Bam. Um, at Kara Akabak, I believe. If you like this podcast, you should definitely subscribe to it on your various podcast subscription services. And if you really enjoy it, leave us a, uh, a comment and rate us so we can get the word out so you can share us with all your friends. And we've been to Sussex Science for the Human Biology Association. Thank you, Julie. You're welcome. <laughs>